0: With Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about, but we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to podsurvey, That's P O D S U R V E Y podsurvey.com slash James, and take a quick, totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Have you ever wondered how to make your life better? Have you ever wondered how to have more discipline? Have you ever wondered what in your life needs improvement? Have you ever complained? Have you ever made excuses? Have you ever procrastinated? To the answer to that last one, I'll give a Jocko Willink style response, which is don't procrastinate, (laughs) that's it. Don't get too mired into the details, don't do it. Don't have excuses. Do something to make yourself better today. Jocko Willink was a a Navy SEAL for many years. He is such an impressive guy. He's got got a great podcast. He's been on this podcast a bunch of times before. I really love all his books, Extreme Ownership, which is part of my own personal mantra, which is to take extreme ownership. And part of that is because of, of my conversations with Jocko. He has another book, The Dichotomy of Leadership. But today we talk about... The expanded book, Discipline Equals Freedom, Expanded Edition by Jocko Willink. I love this book. I have it right next to me because I read from it very often. And is just such an impressive guy to talk to and to know and to meet. If you've already met him through my podcast, he has more to say and we have more stories to talk about. If you haven't yet, this is going to be a treat for you. Here we go. Jocko, first off, I love the book. Let me read the title out. Discipline Equals Freedom, Field Manual. I don't know what MK1 to MOD1 means, but you could tell me. And um, this is the Field Manual. Super enjoyed it. And you know, it was odd when I was reading it. Literally, I had just been told something disappointing to me. Someone had said something, you know, and this happens to everybody at every stage of life, but someone had said something about me which potentially cost me an opportunity. And it was also a non-truth. I'll put it that way. And then I'm picking up your book like a second later. And there were so many things. It was as if you were like writing a letter directly to me about, you know, no excuses, you know, you know, get into destroyer mode, you know, move forward, no matter what, take the next step. And it's, and it's interesting. It feels like the viewpoint is is not that there's an enemy on the other side, but you have to prepare in your life as if there is someone uh, pursuing the same goals as you in conflict with you, and you have to make sure you prepare always in every aspect of your life a little bit better than that invisible opponent. And I feel like opponent's the wrong word, but that's how I felt reading the book.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very good way to read it. And and like you said, look, you might not have a, a an actual enemy human being out there, but think about life. Life is filled with all kinds of resistance and insurgency that's fighting against you. And if you don't impose your will on it, your life will go in the wrong direction. There's no doubt about it. So I think that is uh, an attitude that I have. And I think that's uh, probably a pretty perceptive takeaway from the book from from you.
0: You know, it's, 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 it's interesting because I always feel like the way, even though our backgrounds are completely different, and I always address this, so I apologize about that, but I feel like a, a lot of the ideas overlap and interact in the sense that, you know, let's say I'm in a business and it's not going so well, or let's say, you know, I stumble in some way financially, which has happened to me many times. You know, the discipline I've learned through that over the past 20 years that this has been happening to me is to is to always this day like let's say I have a, a problem this day let's say I, I have some asset that I can't sell or some financial investment doesn't go well or I'm disappointed in some respect I always have to make sure I make one move or one switch in my thinking that moves me forward and if i do that every day it compounds and it adds and that's the sense I, I get from your book and that And that works. It's always being proactive rather than falling back on an excuse or falling back on a regret or falling back on like, well, that opportunity has gone now. It's all over for me. Like those thoughts have to always go away. I don't
1: think it's that strange that people from different backgrounds can come to very similar conclusions. You know, I was I joined the Navy out of high school. I I ended up going to college much later because the Navy sent me to college. But, you know, even when I started talking, when I, when I got out of the Navy and I started talking about sort of my operating system, which is what that book is really, a lot of people said, Hey, you know, have you been, do you follow the stoic leaders? And you know, this is very similar to Buddha And, and just the whole nine yards, all these ancient philosophies. And the fact of the matter is I didn't really read any of that stuff growing up. I was a kid that got out of high school, did did crappy in high school, joined the Navy because that's what I always wanted to do. And then I ended up being in tough situations over and over again and ended up in a leadership position and had to figure out how to make things work. So that's what you had to do. You know, you are doing what you're doing. You you made some mistakes. I made some mistakes. We, but we had to figure out how to move forward. And I think you can look at any anyone. And if they, if they address the problems in life that come your way, you're gonna figure out that these similar things work. You know, there's not too many people that are, that are contacting me saying, hey, I'd really like to talk to you. My philosophy is when something bad is happening, run away. Or, hey, I'd really like to talk to you. You know, I've got a great book that's out. It's called, it's called Avoid Taking Responsibility for Things. Like, that just doesn't happen. So I don't think it's a big surprise that, you know, someone like yourself that's been through some trials and tribulations in your life has come to similar conclusions that I've come to. And I, and I don't think that is very strange at all. I think it's actually, I think it actually speaks to the nature of some foundational truths in the way the world operates. And I think that's pretty good evidence for it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Like sometimes maybe the the mental model underneath uh, a recommended set of actions might be a little different. Like Like, and I do like the mental model of thinking, like, you know, you talk about, for instance, when you talk about waking up and, and the importance of sleep, which is a small section of the book, but, but uh, an important one in my view. And you say, look, if you go to sleep at 10 and wake up at five, that's great. But if you go to sleep at 9.55 and wake up at 4.55, that's even better, because you're waking up five minutes earlier than the guy who's training who you're potentially training against. Meaning for you, you're going potentially to war. And so there's someone out there doing the equivalent training on the other side who might you might have to face in a life or death situation. So you do need to, that five minutes difference makes a difference and it's important. That's the importance of being proactive and and aggressive every day.
1: Yeah, and think about it in the business world as well. I mean, I work with my consulting company, we work with all kinds of businesses, every kind of business you can imagine. And if you think it doesn't pay off to be competitive in business and your competitor is gonna open their store, at six o'clock in the morning and you're going to open up at 5.30. You don't think that's an advantage? That's an advantage all day long. So it, it, it applies to everything. I don't care if you own a pizza restaurant or you're in the financial industry or you're in the construction industry. No matter what industry you're in, when you go hard and you get there early, that's that, that works. And by the way, Sun Tzu in The Art of War wrote about this 2,500 years ago. And he, it, the way he put it was, he who gets to the battlefield first has the, the big advantage and should win. And that's the same thing. If I show up to work earlier than you, I'm going to win.
0: It, it's really true. I, I remember, uh, and I hope you don't mind just me swapping stories here because uh, there's so many aspects of the book I want to talk about, but it just reminds me of things. Like when I had my very first job outside of school, uh, it was at HBO in the 90s. And I remember even being, feeling sorry for my boss. So I was in my twenties, he was in his forties and he had kids and he had a commute to work and I can get there at five in the morning, six in the morning. He, my boss and his entire generation who were working at HBO, they couldn't really get there before nine. They had their family responsibilities or their excuses. I don't even know why, but that's when they would arrive. And I knew just by getting there earlier than everyone else, I was always the only one on the floor when I got there. There was, it was, you, it's this feeling of being unbeatable at that moment, no matter how many disappointments you have, like disappointments could not phase me then.
1: Yeah, and it's really hard. I mean, if you get up to work at five o'clock in the morning and they're showing up at nine, th- that's not even really competition. I mean, you're just destroying them. And, and, and I think I found this, you may not have found this, but for me, you know, I wasn't the strongest guy. I wasn't the smartest guy. I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. And I kind of realized if I was going to be, if I was going to do a good job, then I needed to do, I need to work harder than everybody else. And that means show up a little bit earlier than everybody else, get that, get that head start. And it definitely pays off.
0: Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I'm pretty sure you are the smartest tool in the shed because in order, you also have to know that once you're there, you have to know what to do. Like in order to learn something, you kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is the way I view learning. And I feel your book not only is about discipline and how to get that discipline and what things to be disciplined about, but it's also about learning, you know, making a choice. And you say this at any stage in your life, you say it's never too late to make the choice to be successful, but then you have to figure out in, in whatever your domain is, what are the elements of success that you're gonna start improving, that you're gonna avoid making excuses about, that you're going to start compounding, you know, proactive behaviors in like, how do you, how do you right now, for instance, learn something new? And how did you learn something new? You know, back then it's probably similar.
1: So there's a couple of things that you talked about that, um, that I I've been thinking about a lot lately. So, how do I figure out what I'm going to do is one of them. Cause I've got, you know, I've got a bunch of different businesses going on. I've got little projects happening. I, I know you do too. I, I, I track
0: what you're doing. And, and by but the people- way, I just bought your Jocko drink on Amazon.
1: There you go. So, so people will wonder, you know, how do you figure out what's going to work? What's not going to work? How do you figure out where to invest your, your resources and your time and your money? How do you do that? and and the way i look at it is so so when you're in combat when you're going into battle the the principle is you look at the enemy defenses and you want to figure out where their weak points are obviously right you don't want to attack their strong points you want to attack their weak points so what you do is you go out and you do reconnaissance missions you you probe to push against their defenses and see if you can locate any weaknesses and if you do then you apply some of your resources to those weak areas. And and actually the term that you use in the military is you exploit those weaknesses. And that sounds really bad in the business world to say, hey, once I find an opportunity, I'm going to exploit that opportunity. But what you wanna do is take advantage of that opportunity. There's also times where you push out and you try and do a reconnaissance and you figure out that whatever that thing that you tried really isn't that good. So you don't put any more resources there. So, So that's kind of what I do. The supplement line that I've got a few years ago, I started making one thing. It was, uh, it was tea. It was bags of tea, which no one would expect me to make. And they sold like crazy and it was great. And then I made cans of tea and it sold like crazy and it was great. And then I started making supplements. I started making supplements that I actually use. People bought them like crazy and, and just continued down the path. Now, there was, there's plenty of things that I've tried along the way that I've had to back away from. Oh, that, that's not really that popular or I didn't really get a lot of good feedback. Or, or hey, the, the cost to produce this thing was absolutely crazy and I made enough for me, but I can't really afford to make enough for everybody. So I think having the mindset of being, number one, willing to take some risks to try and do some things, but equally important is being humble enough to say, you know what, that wasn't a good idea and I need to back away from that. And I know there's some sunk costs to, to what I tried to do, but that's okay, no factor, and I'll keep moving forward.
0: Right, so how do you decide when, to stop something, even if it's something you enjoy or something you really wanted to succeed?
1: If I really want something to succeed or something, if it's not, well, let me rephrase that. If it's something I really enjoy, I'll, I'll do it. I mean, if it's something that I just enjoy doing, I'll just do it. I mean, uh, I have a podcast. I really enjoy doing my podcast. Even if no one listened to my podcast, I would still do my podcast because I get to read great books, interview great people. I learn more than anyone From my own podcast, I learn more than anybody because I have to do all the back-end research. So even if no one listened to it, I would still do it. So if I really enjoy something, then I will absolutely just continue to do it. Um, But if I'm doing something that maybe isn't that great and it's not getting great feedback and, and I realize, hey, this isn't that, I'm investing a bunch of time and effort and I'm not getting a good return on investment from it, it's really easy for me to say, oh yeah, I've invested this much time. I've got this much return. That doesn't make much sense. I'd rather be doing something else. It's pretty easy for me to figure that out.
0: You know, I like the section about questions, particularly you see in in an election year. and, And obviously this has been a very strange year for a lot of reasons, but the idea of questioning everything is so much more important than answers. And so you see on Twitter all day long, people have all the answers. Suddenly, all of my Facebook friends were expert epidemiologists. And then somehow my my gym teacher from fourth grade was like a super economist talking about the lockdowns. And now he's an expert on the Supreme Court. If all you have is questions, it's great because like you say in the book, what am I going to do to improve myself today to get better, faster, stronger? And then I even tell my kids at the end of the day to look back and say, what did I do to improve myself? Because then that primes them so that they know at the end of the next day, I'm gonna ask the same question. So they, it's like they have to prepare. So I, I do think this questions aspect is very important. Like question everything. Like what what sort of things do you question on a daily basis?
1: I think what's interesting about this is again, I was really lucky. I, I guess I'm kind of a weird person or strange person. You think? But- when I was a kid, I was a super rebellious kid. You know, I was, I was a crazy kid. I liked hardcore music and heavy metal and I didn't like authority and I didn't like anyone telling me what to do. And I, I just, everything that anybody told me, I thought, you know, well, how do you know that? And I, I did, I questioned everything. And that rebellious streak that I have, that I still have to this day, It's a very important thing to have and, and what what makes it most important and kind of what you're alluding to is when you turn those questions towards yourself, you know, and you start asking yourself, well, what, what did, what, what have I done? What can I do better? Did I really do something productive today? You know, I, I've I've talked to, I was talking to my, my kids recently about the difference between consumption and production. And it's really easy in this world right now to just consume information, right? Mm. Whether it's Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat, like you can just go on there and consume, but you're not producing anything. You're not making anything. You're not creating anything. You shouldn't be in a deficit. You should be hating if you end up at the end of the day that you've consumed more information than you've actually produced or you've consumed more creativity than you've produced. So that kind of thing is the kind of thing I question myself. What did I do today? What did I produce today? What did I create today? Versus sitting around and watching a movie, listening to someone else's podcast, watching an Instagram video, watching a YouTube, like all those things are consuming. And look, you can learn a lot from that. You can learn a lot from YouTube. You can learn a lot from podcasts. That's good, but you have to make sure it's not a deficit where all you're doing is consuming and you're not producing anything. But so the kind of things I question, I, you know, I, as I say in the book, I, I mean, I question everything. I question everything. And, and I, and I think one of your points and one of the reasons that 2020 has been so crazy is everybody does think they know everything and everybody thinks that they, and you know what, they think they know everything and then they can support it with alleged facts from the internet. And they Google some statistics or they, they show that whatever country that did that certain thing and and, and so not only do they think they know, then they reinforce, and then people pile on, and it just, it just becomes completely crazy when the fact of the matter is, and I, I often say this. Do you know how often, James, um, I have to admit that I'm wrong? Do you know how often I have to admit that I'm wrong?
0: Well, if it's anywhere close to mine, it's all day long. <laughs> See, it's not.
1: With me, I almost never have to admit that I'm wrong. And the reason that I almost never have to admit that I'm wrong is because I almost never say, hey, I know this fact or that fact 100%. I never tell anyone, no, the disease is gonna do this or this person is gonna get elected or this person. I never say that kind of thing because
0: I don't know. I don't know. And there's also an aspect of, there's a benefit to not caring. And I don't mean that in a way where you don't care what the policies of the country are. You don't care what's happening in your community, but there's only so many things you can control or so many things you can have an impact on. And it's almost using up the fuel. And you you have a, you know, a section called fuel. It's almost using up your fuel to expend energy on things you have no control over. Like for instance, an opinion, making its way into the world via Twitter.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting times. I think a lot of it has to do with the ego, too. You know, we get wrapped up in wanting to be right against someone else. We want to be correct and we can go to war over some fact that we barely even have a grasp on. And yet we want to argue with James that I'm right and you're wrong. And like you said, what am I actually doing to benefit the world by having this argument on a Twitter thread with a, someone I've never met? I'm never going to see them. It's, it's, it's just, it's sad. I think that at so look, I'm not going to say that these types of things are fads, like the hula hoop, but I think at some point people look around, a lot of people will look around and go, yeah, you know, probably four hours a day on social media is a little bit much, (laughs) or I'm spending six hours a day looking at people, looking at threads on Twitter. That's probably not a great way for me to spend my life. I, I think we'll get there eventually.
0: I think so too. I think there's got to be, but there, on the one hand, there's kind of this uh, addictive dopamine thing that happens when you reload Twitter and there's and and there's more engagement, or you reload Facebook and there's more engagement. But at the same time, it's very easy to see at the end of the day, like, ugh, I I don't feel good right now, and it's almost like you you know you you refer uh, to an example of like eating donuts feels good, but but later it feels bad. It's the same thing with like social media, like feels good to get that one last, like you're wrong because of this thing I just read three seconds ago on Wikipedia, but now I'm an expert on. And at the end of the day, it just doesn't feel good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some short-term gratification versus long-term gratification that we definitely, as human beings, tend to gravitate towards short-term gratification for sure. And short-term gratification is not long-term success, and it's not long-term happiness. And and you know, I wrote about that in the book. People say do do what makes you happy, and and I get it. If you're doing things that strategically over the long term will make you happy, like getting a job that you enjoy, or living in a place that you like, or hanging around with people that that are that you you find enjoyable, then those are long-term things that will make you happy. But as you said, eating a donut right now, sitting on social media, playing another video game, whatever the thing is that you think is gonna make you happy right now, and it's just short-term gratification, long-term, it's not gonna help you out.
0: I love this section in the book, and it's pretty early on in the book, called mind control. I love that because there's almost this science fiction aspect, and you refer to that in the first sentence. It's not about controlling other people's minds, it's about controlling yours, but it's a very Jocko written section. Like, you know, you, you, you write, people ask me, how do I get tougher? And, and you just write, be tougher. How can I wake up early in the morning? Wake up early. You know, how can I stop eating sugar? Stop eating sugar. And your point is, is that you can control these emotions. But I even remember, um, stuff you would write years ago, uh, where it it had the same kind of style. Like people would ask you these questions and you would just remove the question part. And, and there's already the answer. And that that's a That's like a very Jocko way to do things. But I'm curious, some people, they ask you, how can I stop eating sugar? Because they're really addicted. Like it's really hard for them to say no. But you're saying you only think it's hard for you. You have control over what's on your mind. And so I'm just trying to understand, is there a nuance there?
1: I've got two examples here that I I think are very interesting. And the reason they're very interesting is because they were very hard for me to relate to. Um, But around that, I, I got... One was a one was a, an email that I got from a guy and the other one was a guy that I actually met. So the guy that I, sent me an email and both these guys kind of prefaced, prefaced their communication with me with, I'm really embarrassed to tell you this and it's not going to seem like a big deal, but I want to tell you this and I want to say thank you because this had a huge impact on my life. The first one, and again, this is, it is what it is. This guy had, uh, bit his nails his whole life and you know he was a grown man he was a professional and he had raw fingers and he would be in a meeting and he would bite his nails and there would be blood on his hands and he said it was just absolutely horrible and he'd been doing it for 38 years or what however old he was he'd been doing it his whole life and he was like in mid 30s to, to 40 years old so this was a habit he had had his whole life gnawing at his nails. He said he, th- and, and, and it's so strange, right? Because he thought it was disgusting. He knew it made him look gross. He knew it, people paid attention to it. He knew people watched him and he couldn't stop. And he heard me on the podcast saying like those lines right there, Hey, you don't want to eat sugar anymore. Stop eating sugar. And he said, I heard you say that. And he said, I'm going to stop biting my nails. And then, you know, he tells me the story and he holds up his hand and he's got it. He shows me his fingernails and his fingernails are all normal. And actually there was a little bit of damage to him, like permanent damage. There was a little bit of, of funkiness to him, but he was like, thank you. What I needed to do was just stop. The other guy, I told that story on the podcast. And then months later, I met a guy who he, 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 he prefaced the conversation the same way. He goes, you know, Jocko, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you this and it may not make any sense to you and you may never understand what this is. And I, he said, it just, it doesn't fit anything with what you do and who you are. He said, I was absolutely addicted to video games. Hmm. He said, I would play video games for 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day, Fifteen hours a day, every single day, and he worked in the he worked in the computer industry. So he was staring at a screen all day at work, and he would play, he would play video games all night long. He was his diet was horrible, his sleep was horrible, and he could not stop. And he said he heard me talking about that story, and he said, "You know what? I'm done." And he took all of his video games. He sold his video game console and all of his video games and he actually used that money to come to the event where I met him. That's great. And he says, you know, I haven't, played a, I haven't played a video game in whatever it was, four months. So, you know, it's one of those strange things, you know, I think if people, sometimes, you know, I've said before, y- you get what you want if you really want to get control over that, man, you get control over it. And Hey, look, are there things that are out of your control? Absolutely. And I've had those questions you know, some of the most horrible questions I've had in, in, since I've been out talking to people is, you know, when I talk about taking ownership of things, right. And someone will stand up at one of my events and say, Hey, Jocko, I, you know, I, my nine-year-old daughter has leukemia. How do I take ownership of that? How am I supposed to take ownership of the fact everything's my fault? Well, how is this my fault that my daughter, who's nine years old, has leukemia? And, you know, that there, there is an answer to that. And, and I've answered that type of question many times. And the way that you take ownership over things that you have no control over is you take ownership of how you respond. And, and that's what you do. So these kind of situations are, are so you, you always have to remember, and I always think about the fact that what people face in their life is their life. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I started writing those kids' books. I was in the SEAL teams. And, you know, there's a war going on. I came home from work one day. My oldest daughter was talking to me about something and she was sad about something. Somebody had said something to her. And I, in my mind, I was thinking, you know, part of my mind was thinking, this is such a joke. How can you be worried? Somebody called you a name? Who cares? You need to toughen up and then at the same time, I was looking at my daughter I'm, I, I thought to myself, "Oh yeah, this is her whole world and so that's the way it is for everyone you know and and look, you might be addicted to heroin or you might have some horrible disease, or you might bite your nails and whatever situation you're in, that's what you're in and and people have to face those challenges that they come across in their life and and to your point earlier, I think that's what like this book, I think that's what that's why it's so universal, because it doesn't matter what the challenge is that you're facing. It may from the outside it may appear small, but inside that's a huge problem. And from the outside, it may appear gargantuan, but when you're in it, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice but to face the problems. And so I, I think that's why the book has done so well and and this 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 new edition coming out. Is because regardless of where people are in their life, they find it, they understand it, and they can utilize it to help, as you said earlier, move forward.
0: Yeah, like like uh, I love uh, this concept you have. The chapter's called "Good." And so, someone comes to you with a problem, and you reply, "Good." They come to you with another problem, you reply, "Good." You know, so you know, and you say, "When things are going bad, you know, don't get bummed, don't get startled." essentially, you know, say good, move on, figure out how to be proactive. But but sometimes like, what do you say to the guy with the daughter who has leukemia? You can't just say, well, say good because it makes you appreciate life more. It makes you appreciate the time with your daughter more and so on, you know, there, there's a little nuance there, but how do you convert the word good to action?
1: I, I mean, even to the question that you just asked, because i've had that question many times of what what is you know my my friend died my you know whatever person you lose somebody what what god's name is good about that and and you just answered it right you just answered it listen if if look i've lost way too many friends and it's horrible every single time but i can either focus on on that horribleness and and dwell in the darkness or i can say hey at least i got to know them at least i got to spend time with them at least i have these memories good i can i can tell their story that's what what is your alternative when you face something that's that truly dark what's your alternative it's either hey embrace it good and 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 look at what you've got that is positive that's going to come from it the alternative is to embrace the negative embrace the darkness and and go into a place where there's no escape from so even in those really hard situations you have to get mind control you have to get control over your mind and and you know when it comes to loss y- you you have to remember but you can't dwell and and look it's it's absolutely it's a, I I actually have gone through this loss thing enough times now that when I finally put pen to paper on it and explained what it's like when you lose somebody, the amount of feedback that I've gotten is, has been really phenomenal because I, I've mapped it out a little bit. And, and you know what happens is when you lose somebody, when someone dies that you care about, you get, you get hit with this tidal wave of emotion and sadness and it's so big and it's like the ocean and it consumes you. And what's really scary about it is that you can't control it because we're used to being in some kind of control. And all of a sudden you're in a situation where you're not in control anymore and it feels horrible. But here's the reality is the reality is you will start to, those waves will start to They will start to get a little bit weaker and you'll start to get a little bit more control and then they'll get a little bit more space between them. And, and look, there's times where even to this day, I'll be thinking about one of my friends and, and losing one of my friends and I'll, I'll, I'll get very emotional. Even that could happen, that could happen you know, today, but those times will become less and less frequent and those emotions will become less strong. And what's horrible about that is you think to yourself, well, does that mean I didn't really care about my friend? Did that mean I, I'm, a, I'm a cold person or that I'm, I'm an unemotional person or I'm, I'm forgetting about them? And it doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that you are adapting and you're learning how to understand that loss. And as you learn to understand it, you deal with it and you, you move on. So all these things are, are really, really hard. And, you know, I, I, I say that combat is like life, but amplified and intensified. And so, you know, when you, when you, go to combat, you're going to see things that normally take lifetimes to see or a lifetime to see, and you're going to see them in a very condensed form. And that's why you get a kid that's 23 years old who has a thousand yard stare and you wonder why? Well, it's because you're supposed to live to 90 before you watch your friends die. And it's not, not supposed to happen when you're, when you're 21 or 22. And so you see that stare, that kid has been through a whole lifetime of, of suffering in before he can drink a beer legally. So you learn about it and you learn about it a little bit through a fire hose. And I was lucky too, because I didn't go to war. I mean, I, my, I was in the, when I first got in the military, it was the 90s. There was no war going on. My job was just kind of a cool job, to be honest with you. We got to shoot guns and blow things up and sh- jump out of airplanes. Like it was all fun. And, and it wasn't until the war started and then you realize, oh, well, I was, you know, 30 whatever years old. And when September 11th happened, I was a more, I was an older, more mature person. And I had seen, I had seen some, been around loss before. And so I had a little bit of understanding of how to deal with it. But for a, for a kid that just rolls in to the military at 18 years old, he's going to, he's going to get a lifetime of experience in a very short period of time. And here's the thing. There are ways to deal with it. There are, there are people that have been down the path before. There are people that can explain things to you. And again, that's why like writing this book was a, 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 one of the reasons behind writing this book. Because as I talk to people on my podcast and I say, oh, you're going through this, do this. And yeah. they say, thank you. Thank you for telling me that. And I only need to hear that so many times before I said, I better write this stuff down and get it out to people.
0: there's so much overlap between some of the things you say, and and I say them in different ways often, but the the most dangerous thing for me has been looking back at times when I've gone from great success to going dead broke and dwelling on the regret that results. And, it, and I wish at that time, and I'm talking like 20 years ago, I wish I had had a mentor. I wish I had somebody who could have told me this is what you do. And it might be just as simple as just improve yourself today. Just, just get better today. Just view this as a learning experience today. We'll deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. It's either that I had nobody to talk to, or I didn't have the humility to talk to anyone. I had shame around my loss. And, and so maybe, maybe this idea of responding good, that's a muscle that, that you've developed and perhaps you've had mentors or an instinct for that but i feel like it's 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 hard sometimes to do that like it's it's so easy and seductive to dwell on a bad thing that happened and to fall into the excuse and the regret you know it, it, how do you develop the muscle and and i have my own thoughts on this but but obviously you're really good at it
1: you know i i think james the i've been very very lucky in my life and one of the ways in in a million different ways i've been very lucky in my life and one of the ways that i think i've been very lucky in my life is I had a very nice, gentle slope of bad things happening to me. And and so I think as bad things would happen, you know, if a little bad things happen, if a little bad thing happens and and you go, oh yeah, whatever, good, we'll overcome that. It does build you a little muscle and lets you see, oh, I can let this thing, whatever. I'm trying to think of some just dumb things that I did. You know, I just did dumb things. You know, just get in trouble. I'm, I'm trying to think of some right now. Oh, okay, here's one, like going through basic SEAL training. I failed this thing called pool competency where they put you in the pool and they you got scuba gear on and they basically just completely drown you. Um, I, and it's not literally drown you, but they, they rip the regulator out of your mouth and they tie it in knots, they rip your mask off, they bang you into the bottom of the pool. They rip your, all your scuba gear off. you got to, and then you've got to stay completely relaxed and you've got to reassemble the gear. You've got to get everything working again. You've got to get the regulator back in your mouth. You've got to do a check and then they just do it again and they do it for half an hour. And the first time that I did it, I failed. And it, it, it's really horrifying because when you want to be in the SEAL teams, the, there's no freaking guarantee at all that you're going to make it it's it's hanging over your head the whole time and when you don't make it into the seal teams if that's what you want to do it's like there's no other options i mean it's a it was such a fear and and quite frankly in recent years there's been there was a guy um that that killed himself that qu- he actually quit seal training and then you know, he was out of the training, rented a hotel room in San Diego and, and jumped off the the building and killed himself. And I could, I wasn't surprised at all when I heard that because you get some kid that's been wanting to do that their whole life. It's their life. It's their dream. It's their goal. They've told everyone I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And then they get there and they actually quit, which, which should also show you something about what the training does to people psychologically. It's very difficult. Well for me, I failed this evolution, this, this pool competency. And even then I remember thinking like, oh, I'm going to crush this thing next time. And I actually, instead of being scared of it, I went in cause we had, I failed on a Friday and then you have the weekend to remediate. And then on Monday you take it again. And over the weekend, a couple of the other guys that failed, we went into this it's called a dip tank. It's basically just like a metal box filled with water. And we went in there and we just beat each other to death with these, with our scuba rigs. And we just did it over and over again. And we made the, we made what our little training over the weekend, harder than what they did to us on Monday. I rolled in on a Monday. There was no way they were going to stop me. So like a little thing like that, I got hit with some adversity, but I look, I'm not saying it's big adversity at all. That's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it wasn't what I'm saying is it wasn't, you know, I, my, my, my dad died when I was 10 years old. It wasn't this thing that came out of nowhere where it was unexpected. I had a very nice gradual escalation of problems in my life. And so that by the time I was older and I was going to war and I was going to have real, real problems, then I was, a bit, I was a little bit more prepared for it. And even, you know, I had a friend of mine that, that got murdered uh, when I was in the seal teams, it was really, it was a great friend of mine, an incredible person, incredible human being, uh, hung out with him all the time. He was a kind of a heroic guy. He was the, he was the quarterback of the football team at the Naval Academy. This guy named Alton Lee Grisard. And, uh, he, he ended up getting murdered by some girl's boyfriend, et cetera, murder, double murder, suicide. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it was really hard for me. It was really, really hard for me. and But I was young and I wasn't really in a position of leadership and I kind of had to overcome it. And then that's, that's kind of the first initial time that I felt those waves of emotion and not being able to be in control. So that by, by the time I was older and I was started losing friends from war, I was at least a little bit more prepared for it. So I think I've been very lucky that I've had a slow escalation of problems in my life. And as I dealt with the small problems, as you said, back to your question, I think as I dealt with small problems, I built some sort of muscle memory on how to overcome them. And therefore, what I hope is that telling people, hey, this is what you do. Because look, just like you, no one ever told me, hey, this is what you got to do in these situations. No one ever really told me that. It was me just figuring it out. And just like you had to at some point figure out, okay, well I can sit here and be depressed because I blew freaking millions of dollars and I could be set for life and now I'm actually screwed. And you could sit there and dwell on that and figure out what, how you're gonna finish the job of screwing yourself. At some point you said, okay, well I did it once, I can do it again, right? And, and I think that those are slow learns if you have to learn them the hard way and and I think my goal, like with a book like this, and and I think, you know, listening to what you put on your blog and what you write about, what you talk about, you're doing the same thing. Hey, you don't have to learn the hard way. Here's some shortcuts that you can take.
0: It, it's true, like what happens is, and I'm sure the same thing happened to you, is suddenly you have this mindset that when something bad happens, you are able to say good. You, you know uh, implicitly that there's this problem, is, is wrapping around some solution, some, some new opportunity. So as soon as something bad happens now, it's much easier for me to slip into a mindset where, oh, this really is a good thing that happened because now I know that there's an opportunity here as soon as something bad happens. Like I feel happy about it. And that was a mindset I didn't have necessarily 20 years ago. Although I wish I had, it would have saved me a lot of trouble. I'm sure. But like, what, what would you have done if, you know, way back in the day, you did fail to get into the, you know, SEALs. I have no idea. Um, I, you
1: know, I, I would like to tell you that what I think I would do is I would go to the regular Navy fleet for a while and reapply to try and go back again, which is, that does happen. Um, th- there's, there's guys that quit or don't make it through the first time that come back and they end up in the SEAL teams. They end up being awesome guys. So I think that's what I probably would have done.
0: Yeah, we're trying to, and so in to, right right now, so many people are going through issues like this because you know you figure during this economic lockdown, fifty five million people at some point or other filed for unemployment insurance, which is one out of three American workers. So their whole lives were uprooted, their whole lives were changed. Their, their fears about whether they could support their families and their children, or even themselves, the, all of that came into question. And so a lot of people are dealing with this at all ages. And you mentioned that at any age you, you have the opportunity to, to get started, but there's all this mythology around, well, you know, you're, you're 50 years old, you're 40 years old, you're 45 years old. You can't just get started on something new. You got to pay your dues. There's you got to put in 10,000 hours. You got to go to school or whatever. And people are like, I'm 50 years old. I can't not going to spend 10,000 hours learning this. Like, what do you do when you need to learn something new and, and succeed at it? Not just like a hobby, like, Oh, I'm going to go to the golf course and take some lessons, but you need to recreate yourself and you're a certain age. Well, how do you look at it? How do you attack it? How do you learn? I I think
1: that when you say, Hey, I'm going to learn something new. When you're older, as far as I'm concerned, an older person has a massive advantage mm-hmm. in in taking what you already know and learning something. All you have to do is apply what you know to this new thing and you can pick it up quicker than a younger person might be able to. I'm trying to think of things that I've... I mean, I, I started doing a podcast, right? That was five years ago, but I didn't... Gosh, it's been five years already? It feels like yesterday. Yeah. I started doing a podcast like five years ago. I didn't have any experience. I've never, people ask me, oh, did you go to some sort of public speaking course or school? And I never went to any kind of public speaking course or school, but I've been speaking in front of people for a long time because I was in the military and you stand up and you brief people. I don't think I'm answering your question very well.
0: No, no. But, uh, but it's interesting because I never thought of it. I, I mean, I have thought about this concept of can I borrow things I've learned from other domains and bring it into this domain? But what you're saying is even a little broader, which I haven't really thought of, which is just that the general experience of having, you know, the more, the the greater intuition you have when you're older, as opposed to when you're 20 or the greater just database of experience you can draw from. I think that is powerful.
1: I can't believe I didn't think of this. So I actually did start doing something totally new, which is archery.
0: You're kidding.
1: Yeah, shooting a bow and arrow.
0: I I went to an archery uh, thing uh, about a year ago. It's so much fun. Yeah,
1: so I'd never shot a bow and arrow before, and all of a sudden, I started shooting bow and arrow. And what did I do? Like, Like I said, I took what I already know, I applied it, which is good, which reminded me of what you said. I practiced, which reminded me of what you said. But the most important thing is something that you said earlier, which is, The most important thing you have to do when you wanna learn something new, which is be humble. You know, I I didn't walk into the archery store and say, hey, listen, I'm here (laughs) to start archery, but don't worry about a thing because I was in the SEAL teams for 20 years and I know how to kill stuff. No, I went in there and said, hey, I've never done this before. I'm here to learn and I tried to wipe my brain clean of any preconceived notions about how to do this. So, you know, they they say that a lot of times when, when people are being taught how to shoot like weapons, uh, females can learn quicker than males if they've never shot before. So if you take a, a 30-year-old man and a 30-year-old woman and you that have never shot a gun before, there's a really good chance that the female will be a better shot, at least initially, than the male will. Why? Because the female has no preconceived notions about how to shoot and they have no ego about this, you tell them what to do and they're gonna do it. Now you take a guy that's watched uh, uh, Dirty Harry a bunch and he thinks that he's you know, some kind of a gunfighter even though he's never shot a weapon before and he's got these little preconceived notions in his head, it's way harder to teach that individual than it is to teach someone that just has an open mind and is willing to learn. So even though you and I are both talking about this idea that you can take what you know and you can use those parts of that domain and apply them somewhere else, at the same time, if you try and do that too much, or you try and force things that don't really fit, it is gonna cause more problems. So you have to figure out, okay, it's a dichotomy, which I know you love that word, and I lo- know you love the title of my book, Dichotomy <laughs> Leadership. I do now, I po- I, for the 80th time, I
0: apologize about criticizing
1: it four years ago. <laughs> it's it's a dichotomy because you wanna take what you know, you wanna apply the, the knowledge that you have from your experience, but at the same time, you want to just open your mind and be totally humble and willing to learn. So I think that the way that you learn new things. The other interesting thing, and this is another thing, I, I work my consulting company. I work with different businesses all the time, and I work with whatever. I'll go work with a, with an oil company, a gas oil company. Then I'll go work with a financial company. Then I'm working with a construction company. Then I'm working with a manufacturing company. All these different companies, and every single time. I have to learn at least a little bit about their particular business. But I don't walk into say, well, let me tell you how you're gonna solve the problem on your manufacturing line with this. No, actually what I say is, okay, I don't really know a lot about manufacturing. What I do know is about leadership. So let's see how those two things interact. But I'm not arrogant and walk in there and I think that I understand their, what they're doing at the ground level. I don't. But I do understand the next level up, which is how they're leading through those things. And I don't pretend that I know about what their frontline troops are doing, but I do know about how those frontline troops are being led. So I don't confuse my humility about what's happening on the front lines with the confidence that I have that I understand what's happening from a leadership perspective.
0: You know, I guess that leads into uh, authenticity because I think when you're, let's say when you're younger, you don't necessarily know who you are. And I don't mean that in a cliche way. You don't, you don't quite yet know what your values are. You don't quite yet know how you survive difficult situations. You don't yet know how to deal with people who who have preconceived notions of you and, and how to interact with them and how to deal with that. But over time you build an intuition of how to deal with these things. And so you can bring authenticity to a new activity. Like, okay, here are the things I know I'm pretty good at. Here are the things, I I believe in that I can apply to this, you know, for instance, I believe in these things about leadership, which implies asking questions, being humble in these areas, knowing that I have some expertise in these areas, which is why I was called in, you know, there, there's a a saying in comedy, you have to find what your unique voice is or else you're just copying other comedians or who have come through in the, in the past. You have to be who you are authentically. And there, there was some um, quote, you have to ask yourself, who are you, why are you, and why now? And I think that helps with learning too. It helps set the base with where you are and then asking who are you and why are you helps you figure out what are the fastest ways or what are the ways to weave. There's no shortcuts, as you point out in chapter one in this book, but that you figure out how to weave through the, the obstacles along the way to, to by knowing who you are.
1: Yeah, and also I would say that this is interesting. Knowing who you are means you have to be aware of what you know and what you don't know, which goes back to what I was saying. If I don't, if I'm not aware of my strengths and weaknesses, if I'm not aware of the fact that I don't know anything about your manufacturing line and I go in there and act like I do, if I'm not aware, if I'm not self-aware, I'm no one's going to listen. Look, when I go down and try and tell you how to work your manufacturing line, when I don't know how to do it, how are you then when you see right through me and then how am I now gonna tell you about leadership when I didn't even, couldn't even put this together over here? So it's again, as you said, it's authenticity. And if I try and fake one thing, it's gonna ruin everything else.
0: Yeah, I remember um, so there was one point, and it was like 19 years ago, there was one point where I was running with another guy, a, a venture capital firm. So we were always looking at new companies to invest in. And I was, whatever I was, I was 30, and, uh, my partner was in his forties and he had been a banker and we, he'd always start off these meetings. Um, he would say to the, the other company, pretend like I'm a five-year-old and you need to explain your company to me. And they would start explaining it. And he's like, no, 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 I'm a five-year-old. I, I don't understand. And then he would start asking like, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, man, he's asking the stupidest questions in the world. This is really embarrassing. I didn't know what the company did either but he's, you know, I learned a lot from just watching him be stupid or at least act stupid because he wasn't a stupid person. And, and meanwhile, I would make the worst investments in the world because I wasn't behaving like a five-year-old. So that was a big learning experience for me is making sure I always keep that childlike attitude, which unfortunately you only realize when you're not a child, how important that was.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great case for being humble, right? Because yeah. the humble guy goes in there and says, hey, look, I don't know anything about this business. Explain this to me like I'm a five-year-old because I'm not that smart either and I just want to really understand. That compared to, hey, I don't want to show these people that I'm not that smart and I don't really understand their business. So I'm just going to sit here and not ask any questions and I'll make a decision based on kind of what I can suss out from what they say which who's going to make a better decision? The person that actually digs in and understands or the person, you know, I used to, when I I went to college when I was like 28 years old because I'd been in the Navy and the Navy sent me to college, but I had no shame. I would sit in the front of the room. If the teacher got to something and said, something I did not understand. I'd be just, just raise my hand and say, I don't understand that. Can you please explain that again? And no one else in these classes would ever ask that question. No one else would ever say, Hey, I don't understand what you're doing right now. And and sure enough, I would have the highest grades in the class because I was the one that was humble enough to go, I do not understand this. Can you re-explain it to me?
0: I think also, though, how much is that because at that age and given everything you had been through uh, by that point, you had a security in who you were and, and massive problems you actually could solve and had solved at that point. So that gave you a security to say, okay, I could, I, maybe I'm, I don't know anything. Maybe everyone here does. I'm secure myself. So I'll just ask, I think a lot yeah. of the pro- times people don't have that security and that's, and how would, how would one develop that? Let's say you just got furloughed from your job in in the pandemic and now you want you, you, you've been an, an accountant for 30 years and now you want to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, a a a, a dance, a ballet dancer or something, you know, how do you get, o- get over, you can't just say to yourself, well, I've been in war so I could solve this, or I could be humble here because, I'm um, I've got this core of myself built. Maybe you've been insecure the entire time you were an accountant because you were just doing it to, to make some money. You weren't doing it out of love or you weren't developing an expertise. You know, I think starting over that, which a lot of people are dealing with is, is, is hard to find that security at that point. Yeah. And and you're right. And here's, what, here's the double-edged
1: sword that really sucks about this situation, is if you're not confident, then you don't ask questions, then you don't understand, and then you don't learn, and then you don't move forward, right? It's a, it's a bad cycle to get into. And, and, you know, it's an interesting comparison to leadership here, too, because let's say you're working for me, James, and we've got to do some kind of project, and I'm the boss. And if you come to me with a plan, you you say, hey, Jocko, I think we should do it like this. If I'm a confident leader, I say, hey, you know what, James? I like your plan. Let's go with your plan instead of my plan. And and when I say that, it actually reveals my confidence. my My ability to say, you know what? I don't need to be in charge of this. James, why don't you take lead on this? You tell me what you need from me. You take lead, I'll follow. If I have the confidence to do that, everyone can see it. Everyone goes, oh yeah, that guy doesn't care. He's, he's not worried. He doesn't think James is going to take his position or take his steel, his glory. But if you roll in with a plan and you've got a great plan and I look at your plan and say, no, we're doing it my way. Everybody can see that I lack confidence. Everybody can see it and it, it shows through and then that's going to compound itself. So you have to really put your ego in check the mo- that's the thing. The, the the harder you guard your ego, the the more obvious it is that you're that you're insecure. You know, the more you guard your ego, the the more evident it is that that you're insecure, and that's that's an unfortunate thing. It's an unfortunate problem. <laughs> but,
0: but I think I wonder if humility is a muscle, just like so. In the in the in the latter half of of your book, uh, you know, you give exercises for to get into shape. What what maybe is an exercise? For someone who hasn't uh, exercised the humility muscle in a long time, what would be an exercise or what, what's something you might do to to develop that that you know ability that muscle to, to put away the ego Here,
1: here's what I used to do I can tell you straight up I used to take young seals that had a big ego that needed to get humbled and I would put them in charge of operations training operations not op, real operations but training operations that I knew they couldn't handle. And then they'd go out, they'd try and run this training operation. Everything would be a complete failure. And they'd come back and they'd real Now, he, actually, I'd, I was going to say they'd come back and realize how much they screwed up. But normally, since they're not humble, you know what they come back and do? They come back and blame other people. Hmm. They come back because well, it wasn't my fault. It was this person's fault. The, the new guys didn't do their job. Okay, cool. I'm going to give you all experienced guys go and do another training operation. And I would remove their excuses until they would finally see, oh, yeah, this is me. Yes, you need to get humbled. You're not as good as you think you are. So doing hard things will absolutely humble you, and and I think you gotta you gotta pay attention, man, to that to that to that voice in your head, and just pay attention to what it sounds like. It's so obvious when you see other people doing it, and it's so hard to see when you're doing it yourself. It's just really really challenging. Uh, you know, if you had two people that were working for you and and they both didn't complete their project on time. And one of them came in to talk to you and was like, hey, you know, James, this is my fault. I actually, I didn't order stuff. I didn't order the materials in time and I didn't track the vendors to make sure that they got their, their parts of the job done. Next time I'm gonna order supplies earlier and I'm gonna track those vendors a little bit closer and make sure they're staying on project. And you'd go, okay, cool, got it. Next person comes in and says, well, you know, we failed, but it's not my fault. It's because the supplies didn't show up on time and the vendors didn't do their part of the job but that's not on me. And who it's so obvious which person you want to give the next project to. You want to give the project to the person that takes ownership and actually takes responsibility. And who has the humility to say, "Hey, I was in charge and this didn't work. That's my fault." That
0: person's going to fix it. When do you fire the other person?
1: Um I mean it depends on the it depends on the the scenario you know, who are they? What value do they have? What situation are they in? How coachable are they? The real problem, if, you know, a person like that, that already has an ego where they're blaming other people, sometimes they're really hard to, to get them to see the light, right? And that's the only type, the only type of person that you can't turn into a good leader or you can't improve their leadership capability is someone that's not humble. Why? Because they don't listen. So how are they going to get better when they don't listen to anybody? Yeah. The answer is they're not. So if I recognize that someone has no humility and is not going to listen, I'll probably fire them pretty quickly.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure you've had a lot of mentors and I'm sure you've also, uh, been a mentor to many people. And I find once I recognize and, and being a mentor is not like a job description, right? It's just something that it evolves. You meet somebody, you get along and you find yourself, you know, guiding them along when you can, and, you know, hoping for their success and, and seeing them move up in the world. And I've always kept track of both what my mentors and my call them mentees, but often the mentors eventually hate me because many mentors don't want their mentees or their, the people who they're guiding to pass them in some way, in any way, and so I realized early on that the key to being a good mentor and for and and that means for me to learn as well from the students, because that's a critical part of learning, is that you have to, from the very beginning, you have to assume everyone's going to pass you at some point. And the people who who do and you see them on the route to to passing you in whatever domain or field there is, you know, those are the ones you keep and those are the ones you encourage and you want them to, to, I always keep the mindset, I want these people to be better than me at whatever it is they're trying to succeed at. And I find for me, that's a good uh, mental check. Like, am I truly feeling this? Otherwise I'll end up being a bad mentor. And, you know, it's the same sure. thing with employees and so on. I think that's a great attitude to have.
1: We, we used to always say, you want to work yourself out of a job. So that means I want everybody that works for me to be able to do my job better than me. That's my goal. And if they do it, awesome. That means I can either get promoted, move up, and and move to the next section and learn a new job, or they can just take my job and I'll go find something else to do. Either
0: way, I, I'm happy about it. Well, you you know, one thing that you've learned late in life is you write these great children's books, the The Way of the Warrior Kid. You've been on my podcast for those. I always enjoy reading your children's books. That's something you've started from scratch. You're like this you know, Navy seal been to war. Oh, now I think I'm going to write books for seven-year-olds. <laughs> like what was the learning experience there? Did you, did you read a bunch of children's books or, or what did you do? No, I had kids and <laughs> I have kids and I just started, uh, the, it was really hard to
1: find books that were, that had the message and the values that I wanted my kids to have. And so I just said, well, I'll just write my own.
0: And that's what I did. And have you gotten um, feedback? From, I mean, I I enjoy the books, and I think they're 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 well done in a children's book style. Like, have you gotten feedback from kids that hey, I've read your book? I get feedback every day. I mean,
1: the the, the way of the warrior kid, um, Instagram kids post pictures of themselves doing pull ups, and I got an A on the math test. I mean, this is every single day. I get handwritten letters from kids all over the world, and it's it's amazing. And and then what's really amazing is the parents write me letters. Um, And and probably, I've told this story a couple of times, but I had this guy write a letter and he, he was, you know, and I forget the exact facts, but you know, he was drinking every night, his diet was bad, he was overweight, he hadn't been promoted at work, he hated his job, the whole nine yards. And he said, you know, I read your book and I started I stopped drinking while I was on the road. Then I stopped drinking all the time. Then I started eating better foods. Then I started working out in the morning. Then I started paying attention to my job. I got a promotion. Eat. You know, It closes out with, hey, I'm in the best shape of my life. I, I got two promotions at work and um, I'm feeling better than I ever had have. And I really appreciate you writing this book. And the book was Way of the Warrior Kid. And he's a, whatever, a 38-year-old guy that picked up that book and Realized that he needed to to fix his life and there's very simple instructions on how to do it inside those books so a great feedback it's very humbling it's awesome to get and and i love you know even when i do like live events people show up there with their seven-year-old their eight-year-old their nine-year-old even their younger kids that have read another book i wrote called mikey and the dragons for little little kids and it's just it's just awesome man it's uh, it's, I'm super stoked on it. It's very cool. What
0: What do you think will happen next for you in the sense that, you know, do you ever feel, uh, an addiction to being, or a need to be relevant? Do you ever get worried when something settle down for you? Like, let's say you decide, okay, the consulting business, I've done my thing. I've made good money. I'm, I'm. I'm not as into it anymore. So I'm going to wind this down and do other things. Do you ever get worried that you won't be as much, in the public eye like you, you you've really you know your brand has really i hate to use that word because i feel brand feels like lying to me brand feels like the difference between reality and perception but but jocko willing has been out there now and you're you're known slash well-known do you ever get nervous that that will end and that that your relevance will start to subside as you get older
1: now i'm good man I'm good. My my whole life has been uh, way better than I could have hoped for. And, and look, I, I, I like interacting with people, but I'm definitely not addicted to it. And it's just cool meeting people that are that have that, you know, that have listened to the podcast or have read the books. And, and so I, I I'm, I'm good either way. It doesn't nothing, nothing like that is ever going to bother me. Um, I'll be totally fine.
0: <laughs> and uh, yeah, like, for instance, in terms of like, Let's picture a weird scenario. Uh, Jocko Willink, Tulsi Gabbard on the Joe Rogan show. (laughs) Like, and yeah, I can make, I can connect all the dots and everything, but what was that like? It was
1: super cool. I mean, I'm friends with Joe. I had been, I had been uh, communicating with, with Tulsi on Twitter, you know, just going back because, you know, she just, I forget someone made something and somebody made some kind of meme and then, you know, I made some joke about it. And then the next thing, you know, we were going back and forth and then someone said, you two should go on Rogan. And then Joe said, that I get a group text <laughs> that I get a group text from Joe that says Joe me or Jocko me, Tulsi, you guys got to come on the show. And you know, when Joe calls you answer and you make it happen. So it was really cool. And Tulsi, I still talk to her. She's, she's a, a very nice person. She's a very uh, authentic person. I really like her a lot. I mean, I like, like, it's just, it's just very cool to be able to connect with, with her and talk. And, and, you know, we look, I don't think we see eye to eye on a lot of things, but what's more important is we both will discuss and have an open mind and, and talk to each other with respect. And I think that's uh, maybe a blueprint for the way people could possibly consider treating each other as if they actually wanna understand your ideas. I mean, if Tulsi has an idea about something that's different than mine, I don't hate her. I actually wanna know why she thinks that. And if there's anything that I don't understand about the, the the place that she's coming from, or is there anything that she doesn't understand about the place where I'm coming from? Can we get to know each other a little bit better? And um, and And, you know, Joe is a guy that is just so genuinely curious about the world and about things. And so I think that's why he's, he's so successful is because he's authentic. And, you know, people ask me, you know, what's, what's he really like? And he's just, he's, he's like that. He's just a very nice guy that is, wants to learn and wants to understand things better and wants to make himself better. And I think it's just cool stuff. It's a, it's it's an incredible time to be alive. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. And I feel like with Joe uh, in his podcast, he's very good at making it just a calm conversation that happens to be on videotape as opposed to like, Oh, I've got to interview this guy and there's gotta be a moment in the podcast. That's going to go viral or whatever. He's like, I find a lot of times in, in these, in my podcast, and this is after doing like a thousand of them. A lot of times I realize in the middle, Oh, my shoulders are tense and I have to like consciously like relax them. I don't think someone like Joe has to do that. Like, I think he's just, uh, oh, let's just sit down at my breakfast table in this bunker here and just have a conversation with this cool person. And that's what those podcasts feel like. You are
1: right. And the only thing I'll say about that is I think a lot of people underestimate the amount of skill that it takes to do that yes. because a lot of people think, oh, I'll just, I'll be the next Joe Rogan. I'm just going to get people and I'll just talk to him in a relaxed tone and everything will be cool. And they don't realize that he's, he actually is incredibly smart. He's actually incredibly good at having conversations and carrying conversations and asking questions and making connections. He does all that stuff. And and what's incredible about it is it, it does, it sounds, it sounds like it's just a conversation. And it is just a conversation. It's just that it's a conversation that he has this subtle uh, influence over and he does just a great job steering those conversations. Yeah, so it's, and, it's, and again,
0: like I've, I've been interviewing people since n- literally 1995 and I still have to remind myself, relax the shoulders, make it a conversation and he does it so naturally and you're right. I think it's an incredibly hard skill that it, I think that what people don't realize often is that the things that are incredibly difficult to learn, when you watch the masters of those things, it looks easy and that is, oh. that fools you.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. That happens with sports all the time. You know, you see somebody doing something in sports and you think, how, how hard can that actually be? Yeah, go try it and you'll, you'll see. And it's the same thing with that for yeah. sure.
0: Yeah, or like, you know, like Joe Joe is a standout comedian for instance, and everyone's like, oh, I'm funny. I'll just go on stage and make a bunch of people laugh. Okay, just go try it. It is not, it is It is one of the hardest things in the world I've ever attempted to do. And I've learned to do quite a few things. Do you still have the club in New York? Yeah, so I have I have a, a club in New York that I co-own, but I perform all over the country. I perform, I right the, a week before the lockdowns, I was in five different cities in the Netherlands performing. And I've learned, just like you, I've learned a lot of different skills in my life. That is the hardest skill I've ever had to learn. It is really hard to make a bunch of people viscerally laugh, particularly if they're drunk strangers from Norway or wherever, like it's very difficult. And, and it's also often humiliating and you have to be able to roll with that too. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. So, you know, I'll just mention it in the book. You have a lot of great exercises on how to get in shape. I remember two or three podcasts ago when, when you were on with, with leaf, and we were talking about the dichotomy of of leadership, and I asked you. I think this was even after the podcast. I asked you what you did to work out, and you were just like, "Oh, I just go in my basement and do a couple pull ups and do some push ups." And so I started doing that then, as opposed to like the whole gym thing. So much better because it's it's easier to get into the discipline as opposed to like, oh, now I got to get in gym clothes, go to the gym, get a trainer, blah, blah blah. Use a is there the right equipment, you know, and all that stuff. So I like also the simplicity of how you view all these things. And I think that's what makes a lot of this advice so accessible. You know, to, to give a little background
1: on this book, when I originally, you know, I had, I, Extreme Ownership came out. I started my podcast and people were asking me all the time, like, what are your workouts? What are you doing? What do you eat? What's your sleep routine? What's your morning routine? Kind of just basic operational systems that I, that I lived in. And so I said, you know what? And I, you know how what a what a pain it is to write a book and go through a publisher. So I just said, you know what? I'm just going to make a little ebook, and I'll put some exercises, and I'll put some of my thoughts in there, and I'll just publish an ebook, and it'll be easy. I can get it done in two weeks or whatever. And so I happened to talk to my publisher, a guy named Mark, and and he was asking me, you know, hey, you got to get your next book ready. I said, well, you know. I'll write something. I said, right now I'm just going to release this little ebook. And he says, what do you mean ebook? I go, yeah, I'm just going to write down some of the stuff from my podcast and some of the exercises I do. And he goes, you're going to release an ebook? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm just going to put it out myself. And he goes, you can't do that. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're a New York Times bestselling author. You can't publish a freaking ebook right now. And I said, well, listen, I don't want to, go through this stringent, you know, publication. I don't want you to tell me what the cover is going to look like. I don't want you to tell me how many pages it has to be. I said, that's why I'm just going to do it myself. He goes, no, no. He says, no, you you can't do that. And I said, listen, this book is not going to be a normal book. It's going to look totally different. And he goes, he says to me, you can do whatever you want. And I said, really? I can do whatever I want. Okay. So I started putting this book together. And you know, by the time I got it to him, it has black pages. It's shaped weird. It had this crazy cover on it and it's coming to publication date. And I mean, he had to, you know, he is, he had to convince people like, Hey, this guy's people listen to this podcast like crazy. And they seem like they'll get this book. So we're almost a publication date of the book. And he says, uh, I says, is this, is this the most risk you've ever taken on a book? And he goes, no, it's not even close. He goes, There's, this is the most risk I've ever taken with anything in my life. <laughs> he said, this book is just totally different. We'd have no idea where it's gonna land. We have no idea how well it's gonna do. So everyone was kind of nervous about releasing the book because it was so radically different than normal books. And then the publication date was October 19th. And I had like, whatever, nine days of media planned for New York. And I was going to go do all that thing and go on your show and go on Fox and go on CNN and go on the morning shows and the radio satellite tour and all nine yards. And, uh, and my best friend died in a parachute accident on September 30th. And in his will, I was like the executor of his estate I was, it said, Jocko, can you take my mom, if I die, can you take my mom to the service? Can you take care of my family? And so all that happened. And I, you know, I immediately called up my publisher and canceled all media. And and I went and took care of my brother and his family. And the book came out on October 19th. I didn't even, did nothing to promote it in any way. And the book, it just took off. And, and it sold great and it, and it, you know, made the New York Times bestseller list. And I didn't even, you know, didn't even barely know what was happening. And it was just all the people that listened to the podcast kind of tracked what was going on. And I, and I had talked about the book on the podcast and people just went and got it. And, you know, all the little models that they make at the, at the publishing company about how many books you're going to sell and how many they were going to print and all that, that just completely they, it was, it wasn't, it was above any model that they had made They had to print, we were behind on printing. They had to print, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of, of it immediately. And then here it is, you know, this is the, this is the, the expanded edition. And as you know, with an expanded edition, they released an expanded edition cause they're, you know, it's, it still is just selling like crazy. And so it's been a, it's been a wild ride. And I, and I actually remember I got the book and you know, I had a, a galley of the book, meaning a, a pre-printed, you know, not one of the final copies, but just a, a makeshift copy. And I've got a section in there. It's called "Death and What You Do When Someone Dies." And I remember I was so broken-hearted over losing my friend that I actually, I actually opened up the book and I had to read my own thoughts about how to get through this and how to get over this. And I think as, as that was happening, I realized that regardless of how many people bought this book, I knew that some people that got it were gonna be able to use it and use it in a positive
0: way to help them move down the path in a good direction. And I think that is the the best sign of a, of a good book. Like when you're trying to write a book that not for sales, but because this is knowledge. You, it's not knowledge that you have and wanna because you're such a great expert, it's knowledge that you had needed to learn. And so that's why it's more deeply imprinted in your brain so that you can express it through language in a book, which is very difficult to do. You have to have been through something to write something. And like actions precede thoughts, precede being a teacher and so on. And so I, I, I wrote a book once called The Power of No, not because I'm so great at saying no, but because I'm horrible at it. So I had to learn it. So I'm able to express it if i like if if you told Brad Pitt, hey, write a book on how to um you know pick up girls, he'd be the last person I would ask because he just has to say hello to many people, and that's it he he could just say hello to me and i i'll whatever and <laughs> you know so so uh I think that's the whole beauty of writing books is that it's not about the things necessarily that you're the king of it's the things that you had to learn from the bottom up, like, like dealing with death, dealing with loss, you know, learning how to succeed, learning how to get over, uh, excuses and, and procrastination and and the things that slow you down. And it's how you've learned to have your voice. So I think marketing is mostly a waste of time. If something's good, people are going to share it with their friends. And that's the most powerful marketing.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. And that's definitely what happened with this. This was just a word of mouth and now it's, you know, it's, it's sold incredibly well and it continues to sell. And like I said, the the best part about that is I know that there's information in that book that will help people regardless of where they are in life. There's no one that's getting through life without struggle. And this book will help people through those
0: moments. And and also, I mean, all your books are great. I always remember the title of uh, this was your first extreme ownership. It's such an important concept. And I love books where the title is the concept. So mm-hmm. um, obviously I'm glad I read your book. I, I, I learned so much from it, but if someone just knows the title, it could change their life. <laughs> like just with everything you do, if you find you're blaming someone, take extreme ownership and the situation's gonna be better. That's it. <laughs> if that's yeah. all you take away from that book, it's great. Although I encourage people to read that book as well, all of your books. But final question, I know you're, you're busy so I'll ask a very simple question. What's going to happen in the future? (laughs) I don't know. Like there's so much, this is the most chaotic year in, in recent history. I won't say history because there's been a lot of chaotic years, but people are pretty polarized. People are pretty scared. I've heard people, smart people talk about everything from secession to fascism, to this, to that. And, yeah I'm talking politics, but just economics too the The lockdowns have literally taken eighty two trillion dollars from the world economy. I mean things are going to be a lot different when when the dust settles here I'm curious you know just what your thoughts are on, on that i I think that human beings
1: like when you start turning them into pack animals and they get all crazy and start yelling and screaming at each other there's there's a definitely uh a possibility that things can go sideways. I've worried about, I worry about like an escalation where, you know, one person gets killed from the left and then there's a retaliatory strike against people from the right. And then all of a sudden that gets escalated to an even bigger strike to the people on the left. And, and you start, you start basically an escalation in combat, which is, which is a scary thing to think about that being said, even though you think oh there 's so many people struggling right now at the same time, people have iPhones, people have food, people have shelter you know when they when the the, uh, the area up in Washington, Seattle was taken over, the chop or the Chaz, whichever one you want to call it and somebody asked me you know what do you think's going to happen up there and i said well eventually people will get tired of it and they'll go home it wasn't like there was these committed revolutionaries that were up there ready to die for the cause they weren't they were just up there ready to have some fun cause some mayhem and and just kind of carry on for a while they weren't ready to die and and so i don't think we have that level of commitment in on either side, I don't think there's a level of commitment where people are ready to fight to the death and and things have been worse I mean, even in the seventies, you know we were dealing with with real problems I mean, there was police officers being assassinated, being murdered you know the black panthers and the and the black liberation army i mean those they they went out and murdered police officers back then, and that was a a really in insane time, but guess what it was. It, it it there wasn't people really truly committed. There was some, but it was a very small number. And on the and and that's where I think you end up. I think that most people look around and they say, listen, I get there's some extreme people over there and some extreme people on the other side. I'm not part of those people. And look, can you get this sort of new phenomenon of of kind of mob ruling on on um social media? you know, where you can say something on Twitter and all of a sudden everyone can hate you and cancel you and ban you. Yeah, that can happen. That's maybe a new phenomenon. But again, it's one thing to say you're canceled on social media. It's another thing for people to actually want to be willing to stand up and fight and really truly commit. So what, I, what I'm saying is, I think there is commitment in this country, but I think the commitment is to living good lives. And I think that a majority of people will always tend towards back, hey, what is gonna, what is gonna make life here better? What, what can we do? How can we stabilize? I think that's where most people are. At. I think because of social media and because of the 24-hour news cycle, all we see is mayhem. You know, we see mayhem 24 hours a day. And I just think that America is a big ship it's hard to turn it might be easy to sit up there and scream and yell but it doesn't really move that vessel it really doesn't move it off course very much you can move it a little bit but it's not gonna move a lot so i certainly hope that i'm right along those lines that we have stability we have people with that that open up their minds that listen to each other that you know it's like i said with with tulsi sitting around with tulsi and i i talk with her you know, and, and she'll text me when something's going on in America, some, something scary or something problematic. And I'll text her, what do you think of this? And we, you know, we can have a totally reasonable conversation and we can find so much common ground. And I think at some point soon, people will get sick of yelling and screaming. There's some people that won't, I get it. There's some people that just wanna be agitators. I think people are gonna get agitated with the agitators and just turn them off and stop listening to them. And let's find a way to move forward in a productive way if I can help you, that's awesome. That's my goal. If you can help me, I appreciate it too. That's kind of what we're supposed to do. And I think we're going to get back to that at some point in the future. That's my positive viewpoint. And I hope I'm right.
0: I hope you're right too. I, I do kind of think you're right. So so it's all good. So Jocko, once again, I appreciate, I don't even know how many times you've been on the podcast, but it's been it's been quite a bit and always enjoyable. And I always learn something and I always feel better afterwards. And I, and I'm sure the listeners do as well. I get amazing feedback when you're on Um, discipline equals freedom, field manual, expanded edition. It's such a great book. It's, it's like you said, there's, there's all sorts of black pages and it's, it's, I've got it, you know, bookmarked in various places and, and the formatting is so interesting, but it's a, a great book. I always learn so much. Again, just like I learned much from from your other books, the uh, Extreme Ownership, which we talked about earlier, Dichotomy of Leadership, which you made fun of me about my original criticism of the title, but I was wrong, you were right. And once again, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jocko, I appreciate it. Appreciate it, man, always good talking to you. I always learn a lot as well. Thank you. Thanks.